Welcome to the Bench Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, David Rocha, and joining me as always, fresh from breaking free of his stone sleep, it's Romeo Mora. Romeo, how you feeling? Fully healed from last night? Yeah, well rested, healed up, ready to go protect uh, New York City. Oh, yes, you are. And the reason why Romeo was in a stone sleep was because we're going to be talking about Gargoyles today. Gargoyles is an animated television series produced by Walt Disney Television Animation. The series features a species of nocturnal creatures known as gargoyles that turn to stone during the day. After spending a thousand years in an enchanted petrified state, the gargoyles are reawakened in modern day New York City and take on roles as a city's secret nighttime protectors. Gargoyles was noted for its relatively dark tone, complex story arcs, and melodrama. Character arcs were heavily employed throughout the series, as were Shakespearean themes. Joining us to talk about gargoyles is nobody. Romeo is sliding over to the guest seat, and this was something that Romeo decided to do for his personal episode this year. Mm -hmm. So, Romeo, why did you want to do Gargoyles? It's a show that literally stuck with me since, I think, it came out in 1994, so the fourth grade. And every once in a while, I keep thinking about it and I bring it up with people my age and they're like what's gargoyles and I'm like oh buddy sit down for a spell and let me tell you this yarn <laughs> back in Scotland in 440 but yeah it was wildly different granted we had like unique shows too at the time like I want to say we had Beast Wars we had the thing the beginning of anime being popularized on Saturday morning cartoons I think Pokemon was started happening we had Sailor Moon, but this we was... We had X-Men by that point, too. Yeah, you had X-Men, and we had a couple, but there have been superhero cartoons, mm-hmm. like the Batman animated series, surely Spider-Man joined after, but this was something new and unique from a major company that wasn't just... Because Disney, from what I remember, you had a lot of, I think there was like Mickey Mouse cartoons. You had the Little Mermaid that became a cartoon, had Aladdin, but this is someone taking a chance on original IP, where I thought that was on a main broadcasting network. Granted, Disney Channel had their own series, but it never trickled down. Did you catch so it from the beginning, or was it something you caught in later? I did. I caught it from the beginning, day one. Oh, wow. Because it was advertised, because back in the day, right before, like, the fall would start, they would have special programming saying, hey, this was coming up with our lineup. And I believe Gargoyles might have been one of it, or it was heavily, there was, like, commercials. One or the other. And what also caught my ear was, certain voice actors because at that time because I think Next Generation finished airing by then I believe but I was watching them on reruns because it was syndicated to begin with and of course the main villain of the show sounded familiar because he has this nice commanding voice and it was Jonathan Franks and of course Damona is voiced by Marina Sirtis and Marina Sirtis has a distinct voice. There's like no confusing her voice from anyone else. So it, it hooked me. It was What's also interesting about that casting is that Frix was originally a 
auditioning for Goliath and then that didn't pan out and, and he became Xanatos instead. And I'm so grateful for it because I can't imagine anyone else's Xanatos. Frakes really, like you just mentioned, has that commanding voice and that confidence and that like that, that ego too, charm. right? You know, that record charm. Exactly. And it sells the character so, so well. And as far as Marina Sartis, I mean, I was taken aback by it. I didn't recognize her voice at first, but oh, um, when I discovered it, I was thinking, wow, this is this is a really great performance she's putting on in this role. Just something I didn't know that she could deliver. So yeah, I was pretty impressed by that. And so when you have these two great voice performances for these two compelling villains, it really helps sell the show, especially when we get into this five-part pilot. So it premiered on October 24th, 1994, and then each part premiered the following day. And then after that, they were released weekly. So you were right there at the beginning. Do you want to share your thoughts on what you thought of part one, or would you like to share your thoughts on what you thought of all five parts? All five parts, because okay. like, here's the thing. You can't really discuss one part without the other. It was this compelling story, and the way I likened that five-parter was it's like a soap opera for kids. Mm-hmm. You have this hook where you're just like, oh, I have to tune in the next day. And it became like, at least for me, appointment television. Each part kept building up the ante to your like, this is interesting because there were interesting reveals like David Xanatos, this guy who you thought were helping the gargoyles correct the wrong that the humans that the gargoyles warned to protect back in Scotland was trying to do the right thing and he realized, no, he has selfish motivations. Mm-hmm. Oh, you thought Demona was actually destroyed but she's somehow still alive? And it was just brilliant little twists that got me hooked. And then, of course, you have Aliza Maza, which I feel like she is the underappreciated heroines of cartoon history. She's cool. She's not like the typical heroine in distress that I think most female sidekicks of that era were. She handled herself. She was a B-cop uh, working the night shift, the graveyard shift in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And though we'll talk about the romance between oh, her sure and Goliath. <laughs> because that was a choice. But though there were a lot of Beauty and the Beast references that I spotted in my rewatch. But the best part was you have this nice mix of fantasy and cyberpunk. A lot more that, heavily influenced than I realized on this show when I rewatched it. I was like, oh, wow, that, there's a lot of cyberpunk in this. It was like the first time I saw the mixing of genres where I'm like, oh, I didn't know you can do that on television. This show lived in its own little special sphere where they said, oh, we're going to talk about Midsummer's Nice Dream and incorporate it as our main antagonist. And mm-hmm. Disney was like, cool. <laughs> and not only that, they used the classic Disney animation too. And I feel like that was probably the most helpful aspect because it had the same quality of what I would have seen on screen on a theatrical release. And looking back, I'm like, oh, I was spoiled. Originally, it was being pitched as more of a comedy. You could find a little video of Grey Weissman doing his pitch, going through all the art, and the characters look more cartoony than what the final product ended up being. Then they were allowed to take a more serious tone with the series. Thankfully so. I mean, I don't know if Disney realized or not how much Greg Wiseman had invested into wanting to build this series up the way he did in the lore. Even now, how he says he has books and books of notes, countless pages Mm -hmm. of material ready to be made 
made for this show. Like he just loved diving into this world so much. So the comedy aspect certainly would have been an interesting approach. But I think like we're both talking about already, it just wouldn't stand out. And I think Disney wanted something that would stand out. And like you said, I mean, some of these episodes in this first season, you are like, wow, Disney said, yeah, we'll air that. The pilot alone, right? Mm -hmm. When we see Goliath first appear, Mm -hmm. he has a sword coming at him. He grabs it with his hand and you see blood trickle from his hand. And you know for sure he killed soldiers in that battle. And then you have have Demona, like even since we should like the words kill words. Exactly. Which was interesting because you came off of Batman, the animated series. He was like probably the is like the darkest character on Saturday morning cartoons or in the afternoons saying they have a fast rule. We don't kill because there was a code at the time. Mm -hmm. Your characters cannot kill. Granted, Goliath in modern day Manhattan has softened on his stance on what he and the gurgle can and cannot do. But Mm -hmm. when you first meet him, yeah, he was a force to be reckoned with. I didn't want to meet Goliath in a dark alley. Yeah, exactly. Totally agree with that. So in this pilot, you know, we meet the clan. We see that the humans kind of have like this. A lot of the humans have disdain towards them. You think the captain of the city guard is like their friend and he's looking out for them and he would never betray the castle. And, you know, he vouches for these gargoyles. And, you know, I got Prince Catherine and the Magus who don't really like the gargoyles very much. Which, to be fair for Princess Catherine, she had her reasons. We discover later on why she had her reasons for Absolutely. disliking the gargoyles. Childhood which, trauma definitely plays a huge part in this series, right? Dude, <laughs> so much trauma. Yeah. <laughs> like, this was, like, basically, like, the millennials warning, deal with your childhood stuff. <laughs> It's like the boomers knew we were in trouble. Even for me as an adult, I was surprised they got me. I was thinking that the Magus was going to betray the gargoyles to the Vikings. But it turns out it was the captain of the city guard. I was totally taken well, surprised by that. He didn't mean to betray the gargoyles. I should correct he myself. He betrayed Princess Catherine because yeah. him and Desdemona made a little bargain. They get to keep the castle. So the um, intentions were good. And I can understand that perspective with those intentions. But at the same time, it's still very like skeezy thing to do and the other thing that I really love about this show even with you're meeting all these characters in these pilots. You meet Princess Catherine, the Magus, even the captain of the city guard and the Viking leader guy. All of these characters you meet again later in the series to help give closure to not only those characters, but to our main characters as well. And you see redemption arcs happen as well. So it's like everything in this pilot matters. You know, it's not just oh, yeah. it's not just about building to what we're going to have. It's also building of what we're going to get oh. seasons later. It's beautifully done. There are many times where we revisit those events and you get a new light. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> and it never feels like it's out of place, right? It all uh-huh. checks out. That's the amazing thing about no, it. No, like I will say this. The plotting on this show is underrated. Again, this show lived in its own little sphere where Disney was oddly enough until season three hands off. 
which was unheard of. They're just pitching crazy stuff. Like, oh, you know these items, the book, the Eye of Odin, and the Phoenix Gate? Those are going to be important, and we're going to spend like a couple episodes building up the importance of those things. What cartoon did that? Not even Batman the Animated Series was allowed to have those arcs. I would describe Gargoyles as the pinnacle of children's television. Because the only other thing I can think of that have those complex arcs came from Japan. Pokemon, Sailor Moon, Dragon Ball Z. Maybe X-Men? But even then, they were kind of self-contained within those seasons. Where here, we were constantly revisiting different parts of the story. And even then, I have questions if we still know the full story. Because clearly, there are binders somewhere where there's more to what happened during this time period. And apparently, we're getting comic books that just got announced that deals with that period in Scotland. Yeah, very cool. I'm very excited for that, actually. So would you say that it was with this five-parter that you thought you were in it for the long haul? Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yes. This was the coolest thing I ever saw at the time. (laughs) It really opened my world because I really wasn't aware of fantasy at that time because a lot of the stuff is when you're in the fourth grade, you're just watching whatever your parents have on at night or what is on on Saturday morning or afternoon cartoons. And growing up in my household, you watch what grandma who spoke no English, only Italian could understood. That was Murder, She Wrote, Golden Girl, girls and soap operas and so the little time i had was like in the afternoon there was where the soaps were done for the time being and before murder she wrote came on or wheel of fortune so it was these cartoons and there was nothing else like this so automatically my little brain was like this is some cool shit i'm i'm here for it much to the annoyance of my sister who didn't want to watch it so for me i don't remember watching this consistently I think I would watch an episode here and there. I do remember season three when it got on ABC and we had Gargoyles, the Goliath Chronicles. I do remember that. Even though I forgot most of it, I just remember the transition. Honestly, I couldn't tell you if I thought it was a good show or not. Because I believe there was a lot of preempting because OJ Simpson trial kind of like during the Avalon series, (laughs) which I was pissed. Because I feel like season two is where it really hit its stride because it opened up the world so much because you had Avalon, which again, my very first introduction to King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Because if your family is from another country that doesn't spout the Alturian or the English lore, you know nothing. You go learn that on your own. And that was my introduction. And of course, Shakespeare. You think with my name, I would know all about Shakespeare at that time. Yes, Romeo and Juliet, because that was mercifully teased. But when you have the weird sisters and then i could have learned about different cultures and their myths which was amazing yeah and season three kind of got away from that and greg weissman was less involved he was demoted to a consulting producer. And even then, he really didn't get any much credit or say in what happened. Exactly. So it just became a shame. Like, a lot of people don't really like that season. It was critically panned, and the ratings took quite a nosedive. But obviously, there were outside factors that were dealing with the ratings, like we just mentioned with the O.J. Simpson trial. So overall, for me, it was like I only had seen episodes here and there and, and pieced it all together. We might have touched on it in other episodes before. I wasn't all that into fantasy when I was a kid. I was more into 
a much more straightforward storytelling. Like I liked world building, but I wasn't into fantasy. So I enjoyed yeah. watching Spider-Man and X-Men and Batman, the animated series, because, yeah, you had these really cool collection of characters, but it was all very contained for the most part. And you could follow it pretty well. And it was kind of funny because um, my wife was saying that she thought it would be hard to follow this show if you missed an episode here and there. And I said, yeah, but, you know, in the end, what it does really well is that it, it entertains you. That's all it needs to do. It just needs to entertain you because it's targeted towards kids. And so I thought the show did a really excellent job with that, regardless of whether or not you know who this Macbeth guy is, if you know his full story or if you know Demona's full story. It's like, yeah, it's, it'd be more fulfilling if you knew all of that. But the show ultimately doesn't hinge on that. I was really impressed how you were able to just jump to any episode and be able to sit there and enjoy it. Even on those episodes that you revisit certain points in time, the way they constructed it, even if you didn't know what happened to that previous episode, there was enough there that you can pick up what happened and you can still enjoy the episode without feeling like you needed to go back and find it. They would do previously on Gargoyles, kind of remind you of those things. Which was something I want to say X-Men started. You might be right about that. A story this epic needed, to be honest with you. Because here's the thing about Gargoyles. They didn't treat its audience like they were idiots, which just like what Batman animated series did as well, and which also benefited because you had writers from that series working on that show. And it was heavily influenced going away with this idea that you have to dumb everything down, that everything had to be an after-school special where you can deal with important issues. Granted, sometimes it didn't always work where you're just like, ooh, this is heavy-handed. Other times it's like, this is something I would never have thought of. And the one that comes to mind is when Brooke Hudson came out of a movie theater just watching, I think it was a Western or um, a mob movie, and he finds Elisa's gun and he was playing with it and he shoots Elisa. It was a Western. The episode you're thinking of is Deadly Force, a special episode of the week type of episodes. It's pretty good. So what I like about after that first, those five parts, you do get centric episodes with the other gargoyles. You get episode six where you first introduced to the pack Mm -hmm. Lexington is a big fan of watching the pack and then they turn out to betray him when he tries to put himself out there and meet them what was really cool about that episode is that you can see how like ferocious that Lexington can get that was the other thing that I liked about this clan is that they can hold their own they're tough Mm -hmm. like yeah they can all get defeated but they can also they know how to fight they know how to scrap they know how to win battles uh, individually even someone who looks as small as Lexington who is very interested in electronics and you think, oh, he's going to be the tech guy. No, he's more than that. He's very skilled as a fighter and he can defend Mm -hmm. himself. And even though Broadway, like we were just talking about how he could be stupid with a gun and how they maybe leaned in way too much with how into food he was. He really Mm -hmm. was like a comic relief fat guy, right? They kind of got away with that as the series went on. He's also very tough and he has Goliath's back really well sometimes and is pretty good at split decision making. Like when he accidentally shoots Elisa, I mean, he freaks out. You know, he's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened. But what does he do immediately? He takes her to the hospital as soon as possible. He doesn't go to like Goliath for help and be like, oh, Goliath, I messed up. And then unfortunately for him, he gets a little blind rage and starts going after anybody who has guns. What was really interesting about that episode was that it wasn't just saying like guns are bad. It's more saying that guns have a necessity in a way 
and we need to do the right thing of making sure that they're in a safe place and that we're, you know, Mm -hmm. we're responsible. It's all about responsible gun ownership. And I really enjoy that neutral take that the show took with gun violence. Which is interesting that a show like this that aired in 1994 has a more nuanced take on guns than most show airing in the last two years. Because I think back to an episode of The Bull Type where they had like a gun episode where one of the roommates wasn't happy that her roommate has a gun, which the roommate explains like, you know, it's my culture. I was on a firing team, da 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 da. But the episode ended with, well, I guess guns are bad. I'm going to give it up. Like, that's not reality. What God Girls did is saying like, hey, guns can be useful in terms of protecting. However, you need to be responsible. I was taking back because I'm like, I forgot that's happened. And for me, like, it's hard to put into words how brilliant the writing is that I kind of wish writers today would go back and watch those episodes and be like, hey, let's be more nuanced. Let's not beat someone over the head with a message. Because I think it does a good point illustrating their point without alienating people. Yeah, so we're definitely touching on some things that we already really like about the show and high points and everything. And so I think we can explore this more when we start talking about some of the characters. So let's go ahead and start with Goliath because he is our main character. He is our leader of the Manhattan clan. What are some qualities that really stand out to you about Goliath that made you invested in his story throughout the series? I think with Goliath in particular, something that drew me to his character was the fact that though he may be hot-headed and he might be sort of stubborn about certain things and we'll see that more in season two when they introduce Angela which is his and Demona's daughter that he's willing to learn he's willing to own up to his mistakes and grow and that even though like he's sort of like the leader that there is a soft and tenderness to him which I feel like with a lot of cartoons at the time there were far and few in between the only other character I can think of that as similar as Batman. When you look at Goliath, you can't help but think of Batman the animated series, like Batman, because they're both brooding characters. They're both suffering from trauma and loss, but they don't shield them. Well, I will say this. Goliath doesn't shield himself. Bruce Wayne can take some lessons from Goliath Right now that I think about it. And of course, Keith David, what a wonderful actor. It's the type of voice acting where you recognize his voice, but he's putting a lot into it, man. It's not his voice precisely. He is putting enough of his own take and kind of like putting himself in the character, you know, like really putting on Goliath's wings, I guess you could say, if you want to be metaphorical. Yeah, he really transforms himself and it sells it because that's not the only voice performance he does on the show. Um, He's a voice of Officer Morgan. He's a voice of Thalog. And all three of those characters are all distinctly different. Like, yeah, you can kind of hear his voice, but they're all different. Thalog is a clone of um, Goliath. But, but that's where, they, but, that's where but, David really gets to lean in on his, on his Machiavellian side. voice. Yeah, yeah. His Machiavellian side, which is great. And you're right, there's so much nuance in that performance where... Uh, you're just taken back and you're just mesmerized when you see that character on screen. I think he's an example of what a leader should be. While he does carry the burden of the group and his responsible, I make sure everyone comes back each night, but he also listens when, especially with Hudson played by Ed Asner. I'm trying to think back of a, of a cartoon I watched where you would have someone as strong as Goliath admit weakness and look 
looking mm-hmm. for advice is someone like a character like Hudson. And I can't think of one right off the bat. And, and a leader that also, I feel, radiates love. Because I think that's what's really important to note about being a clan and how he talks about his Rookery brothers and, you know, Coldstone. He doesn't just, like, look out for them and, and demonstrates that he's their leader and wants to protect them. He loves these people. He doesn't go around saying, hey, I love you guys. He doesn't say that. But he radiates it. You can really feel it, at least for me. I, I That's what I really love about the show, how not just with Goliath, but all of them, right? Brooklyn, Lexington, and Broadway, Bronx, Hudson. You feel this, like, connection of love amongst each other. That's the thing that I also noticed, too, is, like, you're looking at a lot of other shows about family. X-Men, I think, was probably the closest example I saw as a child. Found family as an allegory for, like, the gay experience or different experiences out there. And I feel like with the gargoyles, with the clan, I'm hard-pressed to see examples of brotherly love. Of course, we have examples after gargoyles that I can think of, but not during that time, because a lot of the cartoons that were out there, you just have the one solo hero. Yeah, they had sidekicks, but they didn't have those moments that you had here spotlighting between all of these characters. And one of the things I appreciate about that is it was seriously it's okay to be vulnerable. You can be someone strong like Goliath and still be vulnerable, which I think is an important lesson for Mm -hmm. young boys. Something I didn't realize until looking back as an adult is is basically Goliath just looking around and saying, this is the last of our kind. All we have and we have to protect what we have. But at the same time, he's also saying you shouldn't shield yourself from the world outside. And I think that is what I love about Lexington, Brooklyn and Broadway because they're younger than Goliath. I think they're like maybe maybe one generation down from when they were hatched and the rookery. They almost imply like they're teenagers, right? Yeah, feels, you get that sense. That yeah. And I just love that each of them have their own distinct personalities. Like you have Lexington. He loves his video games. He loves making his own computers. He's the tech guru of the group. You have Brooklyn, who is like your reckless daredevil. And then you have Broadway, who's, we'll say he's a foodie. I think what's the most important thing to note about all of them, the quality that they all share, is that they are open-minded and willing to adjust to their new environment. Once Mm -hmm. they get to know it, understand it, because the goal is to protect it. And how Mm -hmm. can you protect it if you're just hiding out in your castle all day? You need to go out there. You need to explore. You need to help understand it, which is, I think, really cool. I mean, granted, Hudson spends a lot of time sitting down watching TV, but that's how he's learning about the culture and the world. World they live in now, right? He's learning it through the television. Mm-hmm. So all of them have their own methods of learning about the world around them. And mm-hmm. you see what does Goliath do? He likes to go to the library and, and read. read books. And that's the way he learns. And something that I guess we'll just slide over to Hudson real quick because he's probably one of my favorite characters, especially during this rewatching, because at least from my background, we always respected our elders. We always looked Mm -hmm. to them. We're always saying that, hey, there's always something to learn and we respected them. And then, of course, being first generation, you see other peers treat their elders. And it was always like this weird thing. And the way they treated Hudson on the show is something that was the 
relationship I had with my grandmother. The way they treated Hudson, his age was never, for a better or lack of work, a disability for him. Especially with, like the episode where he had, I believe, cataracts. He was able to adapt. No one pitied him. And that's something that I liked about that show. That Hudson was still a valuable member of mm-hmm. the clan. And no one had to look out for Hudson. Hudson was good. And of course, again, the voice acting from Ed Asner, which oddly enough, the only gargoyle with a Scottish accent. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? That threw me off because when we go to the world tour, you had all of the other gargoyles from around the world that sounded like they were from that region. And that threw me off. And maybe they thought like it would have been too distracting if a bunch of gargoyles had Scottish accents. And that could be it too. But to be fair, it was just weird. Even though the kids on Avalon, at that point, how was your choice? <laughs> because none of the third race was there. They all had fairly different accents, but that's fine. They're ethereal, they're fey. I get yeah. that. But I'm like, this was the point where they corrected that mistake. <laughs> Angela, <laughs> Asia should have had a Scottish brew if she was Princess Catherine's favorite. She should sound like Princess Catherine. You know, you're absolutely right about that. That is the only complaint I have about the <laughs> series. And it's a minor one. Don't let that deter you. No, no, definitely not. Are there any other uh, main characters you want to talk about? We have to talk about Elisa Massa. She is our fish out of water character point of view. Voiced by Sally uh, Richardson. She is a police department detective. I would argue she is modeled a little bit after Belle. No, I, you know, I don't really see the Belle comparisons too much aside from maybe being into Goliath in a romantic way. What I do see is someone who is a workaholic, does make friends very easy, but isn't the type who likes to go out and hang out with those friends. And some of that probably has to do with the whole work in the graveyard shift. If you really think about it, she doesn't have any friends. The gargoyles are her friends, aside from her work friends. She doesn't have any boyfriends throughout the series. She really doesn't have much of a social life going on, even though she's like very likable, very cool. I mean, I wouldn't mind being friends with Elisa. I wouldn't mind trying to date Elisa if I was single. I think this is a very cool woman who can handle herself, who's very smart and I think is very interesting as well and as we see is very open-minded how she's able to not be so deterred by the appearance of Goliath. In fact, you see in the Awakenings episodes how they already kind of have this chemistry, mm-hmm. this back and forth. It quickly develops. I like the character a lot. There are times where I'm like, it's kind of hard for her to be involved in things because it's too out of her realm, too out of her expertise, you know? Mm-hmm. So the writing has to kind of like make up for it and come up with little things to make her look important or useful, especially in the Gargoyles World Tour episodes. But ultimately, I think she's a great character. And the only thing I could say that I maybe wish they did more with her was that and keep in mind that I did not watch every single episode to prepare right. for this. Mm-hmm. Maybe more procedural episodes involving her, seeing her solve more cases. Like we obviously know she's smart. She's a capable detective. So but I wish it was like an overarching like crime situation where she wasn't dependent on the gargoyles and she was able to solve on her own. Like I thought that uh, might have been cool. I don't know if you saw the two episodes where she went undercover. No. There were two episodes where she went undercover and the second one was a call back on the first undercover thing where the gargoyles were confused what happened to Elisa why is Elisa acting strange which they insert themselves into her investigation and then she has to involve them which is great they tried to have an Elisa Maza episode (laughs) the network was like no it's called gargoyles not Elisa Maza (laughs) 
<laughs> so there's this whole thing where she goes undercover trying to get into one of the crime bosses, which whose name's Jenny Tragone, yeah. And then later on, another mob boss comes in. But yeah, there were a couple of them where they were like, where she did some actual crime work that didn't involve the supernatural stuff from the gargoyles. So there are a few. I think there was more story to tell because if you look at the tour, Elisa Mata's family somehow have connections with the third race during the world tour. They sort of touched on that she is a woman that has Nigerian ancestry and also an indigenous ancestry, I think is in Arizona because Peter Maza was visited by the coyote, which of the indigenous folklore in Arizona. And then Diane, her mother, voiced by Nichelle Nichols, from Star Trek fame, Aurora from the original series, has dealt with Ashanti, played by, I believe, LeVar Burton, also from Star Trek fame. I have a feeling, and this is my theory, I don't know if he'll ever get around to it. I feel like there's something going on with Elisa Maza, that she's not all like human as we're thought to be. And I felt like there was always hints about her and her family. They're always connected to the Fae and Obron and his children. There are too many coincidences that were happening where I'm like, there's something more with her character and her family that we're led to believe. But to harken back to what you said about her, like, I feel like she is probably one of my favorite female characters on like in cartoon history I feel like underappreciated she held her own granted I don't know how I feel about the romance between her and Goliath it's bestiality at its finest am I right whoa 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 Nothing happened. <laughs> Nothing on screen happened. Let me, sure. let me put it that way. But yeah, I think she's a great role model for young girls out there. Nowadays, Disney, the female characters are a little bit more self-reliant. But at that time, they were always dependent on the men. Mm-hmm. And I kind of felt like they made Elisa Goliath's equal. There were times where they both saved each other. Mm-hmm. It wasn't always Goliath swooping in at the last minute to save Elisa, which was a nice change. Any other main characters that you like to know? In terms of our gargoyle clan no i mean there are a couple secondary characters that we should talk about would you include demona as a main character yeah demona is definitely a main character i think there are two villains that are definitely main characters in my eyes even though we don't see them all the time and that is xanatos and demona and so i think it's a good time to get into those villains let's start with demona she is the most complex villain i have ever seen in any disney product ever you get her motivation why she hates humans, why she does what she does, and you still feel bad for her. I so root for her. I'm sorry. If it's wrong, I don't want to be right. And she fights dirty, doesn't she? She's always using weapons. Nowadays, you will call her a girl boss. God. But in all seriousness, they took a lot of care with Damona in the sense that we got lengthy episodes. It's sort of walking you down the road, especially with Macbeth, the levels of betrayal that she's experienced. Granted, it was through the machinations of Oberon's children, the Weird Sisters, making Demona and Macbeth sort of align each other to further their goals on Avalon Mm -hmm. centuries later. But you honestly can't feel bad for her. I mean, this is a gargoyle that had a plan to sort of liberate her fellow Rookery brothers and sisters, only to be beat 
betrayed by the man that she trusted, spent years alone fending for herself, able to build a new clan for that to get destroyed again, and then roaming the world for centuries until she somehow met someone that she felt she can sort of trust to enact her plan to free Goliath and her Rickery brothers, only for them to turn on her. Cursed with immortality, yet she still lived a full life before that. A full life of hiding, a full life of betrayal, a full life of really, I mean, she also gets in her own way. Her actions, how they affect her, not only in that moment, but for a millennium, like Hunter's Moon, we learn the origin of the hunter and chasing her down all because she scratched this kid in a barn because she was stealing their fruit, you know, and then how that generational trauma that put years and years and years later to those three kids. It's because she too was mistreated by humans. Mm -hmm. The moral of the story is humans are at the root of everything. I can definitely agree with that. She has elements of Magneto in her. She does have elements of Magneto because the whole purpose of a gargoyle is to protect their home and the inhabitants in that home. But then when you're treated less than, say, the cattle, it does something to you. The misalignment and the mistreatment, you can't help but sort of resent the people that you're sworn to protect. And in her, which of course, Goliath has Hudson sort of guiding him, which I don't understand why that didn't carry over to Demona, but I digress. But you see someone that's just like, we're their equals. They protect us during the day and we protect them at night. She's sort of someone who sees the inequity of this relationship. And in fact, they're not even given names. They're not even humanizing the individuals that they're relying on to win battles, to fight and die for them. So I think like that inequity and the mistreatment sort of hardens Demona to Mm. who she became. And you would think that the entrance of or the introduction of Angela would soften her heart and resolve against humans and the world around her. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think it's just something that she can't let go of anymore. I think it's a phrase that we've used many times when we're talking about other series is she's too far gone. Agreed. She's too far gone where no amount of therapy, I don't think. <laughs> it's probably a dangerous thing to say on a podcast, but I think for this character, there's not enough time for her to heal those wounds. And a years and she can never it's centuries heal. it's literally centuries of yeah. like trauma that yeah. i don't think anyone can really walk away from really really cool villain and i'm glad she stayed a villain i mean there was in the episode the four-parter of uh city of stone she is ruthless man like she's going around smashing humans and that are in stone and she shoots one that's like a lady like she shoots her arm off or something like that so when she wakes up she's gonna have no arm <laughs> that's some I, messed up heavy stuff you know there are some kids she's stomped out <laughs> yeah yeah you know there were some children she oh, stomped out for sure for sure and so that to me i like that the show never fully redeemed this character because you're right i mean there's just too much there where it's like someone like that is too far gone too irredeemable she is a villain 
And I appreciate the show for that. Not to say that she's unable to love and act selflessly because she did that a couple of times. Because above all else, if harming another gargoyle comes into a way of her plans, she'll always choose her kind, which I think is like a weird morality, which I feel like we're giving like pity points to sort of redeem her in a way. But I think there's something about her like the same way with certain villains. And again, we're making the comparison to Magneto. At least there are certain principles even they won't cross. Where I feel like cartoon villains, it's all or nothing. And there's no nuance to that characterization. And here there is. She's not all bad, but she's not really good or redeemable either. Zamona is who she is. Absolutely. One final main character that I think we should touch on before we can decide to move on to some side characters is Xanatos. David Xanatos himself. Like imagine if Batman was a billionaire and had his shit together. That's who you have here. Or criminal. Or criminal, basically. Xanatos is a complex complex character. He does things to further his wealth. agenda. He has a yeah, personal agenda as well. And it's mostly for his wealth and sort of this idea of building a legacy, which when you discover in the episodes, is a self-fulfilling prophecy because as we learned with the use of the Phoenix Gate, he gives himself a bloom through the Illuminati that he's a part of in order to gain this riches when he was a young, I think 19 or 20 year old to build mm-hmm. his fortune. There's a weird time travel loop which this show does brilliantly and it never gets old and I appreciate that with the writers yes. like there are simple rules if I were to teach a kid the concept of time travel I'll show them these episodes <laughs> we talked about Back to the Future and you can revisit that episode that we covered with Wes sometimes the time travel stuff kind of get confused in the logic sometimes and even Doc Brown's like well, well never mind that don't pay attention <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> on the plot of this movie. We're in Back to the Future. It's all about like time catching up to what the changes have been made. But in Gargoyles, it's like there's these very specific decisions that are made that you can't change time. It's predetermined. So it's just kind of neat how he didn't even know that he did this for himself until he actually physically himself went back and did it for himself. Then he is able to have the memories of like how he's able oh. to become the billionaire that he that he had. Or Goliath needed to go back in time in order to save a gargoyle from England. Yes, Griff. There was another episode too that I'm blinking on that dealt with going after the Archimagus. And it was Demona and someone else. Oh, it wasn't Goliath, was it? That's right. It was Goliath. So you can't escape time. You're forced to sort of act along with it. It introduces um, time paradoxes really nicely. But yeah, Xanatos, you can see him struggle trying to do the right thing. Which is kind of fun because I feel cartoons, they're evil because they're evil. They're because they're the bad guy. And with Xanatos, there's this complexity to him. Like he tries to do the right thing, but though he can help himself, making sure that it somehow still benefits him. Like what he did to Elisa's brother, Derek, where he didn't expect him to become a mutate. And that's kind of the thing about Xanatos is that I wouldn't call him heartless. I would say he's more just like he thinks of things very practically and he thinks of things. Yeah. How are they going to benefit him? Yeah. I just like that. He's also not afraid to get his hands dirty. Right. He gets in that Goliath mecha suit and he flies around and fights and see if he can even stand a chance against Goliath so that he's even knows what he's capable of. He's always challenged 
challenging himself, which I really appreciate. He's not always just hiding in his castle, trying to like move the chess pieces. I mean, he does it sometimes, but not always. Like he's able to go out there and get his hands dirty and figure out, clean up his own messes too. Instead of Batman, I will liken him to Tony Stark (laughs) with the mentality of Dr. Doom. Because if you think about those characters, he never asks himself, should I do this? It's more about what happens after this happens and how it benefits (laughs) me. He never thinks about the consequences, (laughs) which is great. Because he's so rich, it doesn't even like, you can't really affect him. Sure, he served some prison time, but even when he was in prison, just like Mm -hmm. the Kingpin and Daredevil, he's still moving the pieces around, you know? He's still getting stuff done from behind bars so you know you just have so much respect for the guy i mean he's a freaking boss man (laughs) which i will say the whole first season was to make sure him and fox got out of jail together yeah (laughs) they can get married and that was actually a great twist too was learning that he and fox have this relationship and you think oh it's just one of those things where it's like oh it's just from one of those like surprise things we're not gonna like actually explore this or make this grow or anything like that but it turns out that's exactly what they did their relationship grew they got married they had a child he did everything in his power to protect her to protect his child you just see this moral compass that he has and like how having a family can change even his perspective it kind of helps to have a character like Thalog because Thalog is a combination of Xanatos and Goliath you think Xanatos is one thing but it turns out no he's not that because you compare him to Thalog like Thalog is the one who's able to make way worse decisions than Xanatos would decide to make it's mm-hmm. just actually it's really fascinating and also how we find out in the future tense episode with that he's uploaded his subconscious to what the grid or the internet or whatever you know and he kills his son but it's not even him it's not really Sanatos by that point right would you consider that Xanatos no by that which by the way which to be clear it was an illusion by Puck <laughs> They left the door open to whether or not it was it was real. Which anything I would argue it's the cyborg coyote more than Xanatos. Yes, I agree with that as well. Because even at the end, he's able to make amends with Goliath after the gargoyles prove themselves and sort of save his child. And he's able to make admit his mistakes and even gives them a home after they were hunted when their bell tower got destroyed by the hunters. You're right. I think fatherhood softened him. And I also think sorted Fox in a sense, like his relation with Fox. I mean, they still have ulterior Moses finds all of the things they did. I mean, even with the during the Goliath Chronicles series, Fox wasn't making Brooklyn famous for his benefit or for gargoyles around the world. So she can go and have a night out. So there are still ulterior motives, but they just softened their approach and their schemes. Yeah, There's less yeah collateral damage exactly exactly there's no question xanatos throughout the series does some really horrible things you know what happened to Derek? what happened just the idea of creating his own clan of mutant gargoyles i mean let's be real the guy has a weird fetish for having his own gargoyle clan (laughs) it's very weird Mm -hmm. (laughs) if i was a billionaire would i want to make my own gargoyle clan if i could maybe maybe maybe. i don't know maybe no (laughs) 
to be fair, he created them because Demona was his first impression of gargoyles. He thought all gargoyles would be like Demona. Had he met the gargoyles prior to Demona... Yeah, the Manhattan clan. I don't know if it would have gone down the same way where he would make his own clan. Because again, the mutates... I still, even though it hasn't been explained, maybe later episodes, Demona was there. Right. I like that he's so interested in in becoming immortal. He's not afraid of the concept of being immortal. You know, it's just interesting how someone is just so hard pressed, committed to wanting to achieve that goal. And, you know, I've thought about this as well. It's like, would I want to be immortal? And I think I I don't know. I don't know if want is the word. I think I would be okay if it happened. That makes sense. I don't know. Would you want to be immortal? No, because if you think about it, do you? So we're talking immortal, like you'll never ever die. I hope to God if you became immortal, they discover space travel and how to inhabit <laughs> other planets because I don't know what happens because the sun, when it becomes a red giant, will destroy <laughs> Venus and Mercury and then it won't get to the Earth, but it'll be really, it'll have the same orbit that I believe Mercury has right now. So there's nothing there. Fair enough. Even before then, all your friends now, you're going to watch them grow old and die. And I guess you will repeat that cycle for how many generations. Yeah, I guess for our perspective, that would definitely be the case. With Xanatos, it seems like he doesn't really need that many friends. I mean, he has Owen. But if you look at Demona and Macbeth, look how miserable they both are. Especially Macbeth. He was a king. He's lost everything. And he's in this perpetual cycle. Same with Demona. And when you think about Macbeth, Macbeth is fascinating to have in a children's television show a character who is basically trying to commit suicide in some episodes. He, he just has to perform it in a different way by killing Demona. I always thought that was so fascinating. Like, wow, this is in a kid's cartoon. We're exploring the concept of like someone who's lived so long and who has and who doesn't want to live anymore and is literally trying to commit suicide on screen it's just done differently so that you know it could pass censorships <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but that's really what he's doing i like how complicated because at first when we first meet Macbeth, it seems like he's going to be a full-on villain against the gargoyles but as the series progresses and we learn about his backstory and how he's connected to demona yeah you really begin to sympathize for him he is very much he's an anti-hero or an anti-villain you know like he's very much like and it's so nice that the show was able to spend real time with this character for us to learn this story. And the heartbreak, yeah. Because yeah, it's heartbreak. a nice reshaping of the classic Macbeth. Should know it is the voice by John Reese Davies, as you may know him as many other things, among others, as Gimli yep. on The Lord of the Rings. He brings such a vulnerability, like if you were watching the Shakespearean play. This is a man who's made had to make hard choices for his country and the ultimate betrayals by Duncan. And when you look at it, this is where they sort of start introducing the children of Avalon, where we get into a Midsummer's Night's Dream with the weird sisters, the Mm -hmm. witches from Macbeth. And you learn that he's been a puppet for the weird sisters this entire time, along with Demona. And I will say this, he can never have a happy ending, because you can't add a character from a Shakespearean tragedy and make him a happy-go-lucky person. No, thematically, it doesn't work 
at all, no, right? No, yeah. it doesn't. In a way they sort of did where he accepted his fate. Granted, they almost did give him a happy ending, like when they introduced King Arthur. And it says, you can have a place at the new um, round table. And then Macbeth says, like, no, no, I can't submit my rule to your rule. But he was still offering his services down the road, which we never got to with some kind of a... It would have been interesting to see who he would have been <laughs> when we met after that point. Which I will say his quest to release himself from this curse. I want to say we sprinkle a little bit of Hamlet because Hamlet also, even though he was sort of faking it, he was questioning his existence. The soliloquy, to be or not to be, was about committing suicide and whether or not he was worthy of this life. And I kind of feel like they added it to Macbeth because, again, Macbeth lost everything during his time as the King of Scotland. And then he's lived a period, I'm assuming, of isolation and slowly gained his wealth because clearly he has a lot of fun gadgets that almost rival Xanatos. Isn't it funny how any character that seems to be immortal gains immense wealth over time? I feel like if I was immortal I'd still be like <laughs> maybe middle class, upper class, not even like middle upper class. <laughs> you know, yeah, upper middle I, class I will I say I don't this. feel like I'd be very rich. Maybe I'd play the stock market games a little better, but that's, but that's about it. <laughs> I don't know. But then again, if you think about it, if he has certain and antiques or what he considers that's that's really what it boils trinkets, down to yeah exactly like, like a painting or something yeah and he's hold on to it you could easily sell it that's and very it, true and slowly accumulate fortune i would love to see what happened during the 1920 with Demona and Macbeth. <laughs> like how did they avoid the wall street crash i would be down for an episode if this ever show ever came back Macbeth as a bootlegger and <laughs> 1920s new york or wherever he is Oh, for sure, right? So we're on side characters now here. Is there any one in particular you want to talk about? We got to talk about Owen, Xanatos right hand man. Very little emotion, very monotone. Played by Brent Spinner, Data from Star Trek. He is the most bland human being you ever did see. Well, to not beat around the bush, I mean, when we get the big reveal of who Owen really is, that was a pretty cool twist. Puck from a Midsummer's Night Stream, we're like, because we only got hints that the weird sisters exist. And of course, the weird sisters have no connection to the comedy Midsummer's Night Stream. And then to be like, oh, they're all connected. He's a trickster fear that belongs to this ethereal realm, which I just realizing other world myths were coming in. This was like our introduction to D&D for young people <laughs> and the Feywilds. As an adult, I'm like, I've been prepped for D&D my whole life. I just didn't know it yet. He's probably my favorite side character once I got the reveal. And I love his explanation was I look at the most bland human being decided to take it as my own persona because that's how I feel all humans are like. Which is Fox's father's assistant who look exactly the same and they both look at each other like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Which was great. So the other children I want to briefly talk about. Anansi, played by LeVar Burton. That was the one that kind of stuck with me for a long time for some reason because I always can never think about the world tour it's Avalon stuff with the Weird Sisters and the Archmage and the episode with Anansi. And then, of course, there's Tatiana, which the voice on rewatching I knew instantly as Kate Mulgrew. Catherine Janeway herself of the Starship Voyager. She was a nice twist because she's also Fox's mother. Yeah, which another good twist. Which brought into a lot of questions about Fox. Is she magical? Or maybe she was that lucky without knowing she was lucky. 
and why that amulet i think it was the eye of odin yeah that it was. she was gifted which i question maybe that's why she transformed into a werewolf <laughs> or a werefox i kind of wanted more episodes with her and oberon but i love that it was limited while they were fun and great they didn't overstay their welcome like other characters which I'll let you reveal your feelings about the uh, wolf pack. The wolf pack are just like these cheesy, unnecessary, non-threatening characters that don't serve any real purpose other than just like filling time for an episode here and there. They don't really matter to me in like the grand overall plot of the series. I just don't find them threatening because we know they're not going to kill anybody. We know they're not going to make a dent. You know why? Because they're being completely controlled by Xanatos the whole time. So it's just like what is even the point of spending so much time with this group? I didn't find them charismatic at all. I thought they were all very irritating, especially the brother and sister. I just had enough with these characters. Like one episode, it's like, okay, whatever. And then they kept bringing them back. It's just like, oh my god, can we stop bringing them back? Which I gotta say, like, I think maybe it was cheaper because they already had the character models designed. Oh yeah, of course it's cheaper. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to quickly touch on my favorite clans because we, we keep talking about the world tour so as we mentioned before I, can't, I don't know if I did mention before that they went and found gargoyles from around the world my favorite ones besides the Avalon because it brought Angela and I like Angela Angela is a fun character where I think actually softens Goliath but I kind of dug the design of the London clan London clan was kind of cool because you got more traditional gargoyles and in the Mayan culture and in Japan. But London clan was so unique, which I don't know how they fit in the whole species of gargoyles. I don't know if you would categorize them as gargoyles, but you have the main three. You have Griff, who's a griffin, Leo, who's a lion type gargoyle, and Una, who's a unicorn gargoyle. Yeah, it didn't make any sense to me, to be honest with you. But, <laughs> but I they kinda, look cool. <laughs> but I like them because they were something yeah. unique and there's like 189 of them. Where are are they? <laughs> Which I love their whole conceit is they're able to walk around freely at night because they own a magic shop and they think that the employees dress in costume, which yeah. I love. But yeah, I mean, they spent so much time on that world tour that I think people were getting a little restless. It was like half the season was spent going on that world tour. But, but... to be fair, we see it as a long season, 50 sure. some episodes. And what's broken up into years, though? It's a long time when you're not spending back in Manhattan with the rest of the Manhattan clan. You don't Maybe. see Xanatos for an extended period of time. They did have episodes where they would jump back and forth sure. so you know what they were doing. They make Griff and King Arthur. It was a long thing. It added to the story because mm-hmm. it all cumulated to them returning and the gathering of well, them trying to claim Fox and Xanatos' child. Is there any high points that maybe we haven't covered yet? The two-parters and the backstory in season two, I feel like it was peak. City of Stone where Demona decides to turn everyone into stone. Mm -hmm. And we also got the story of how Demona became immortal and the creation of the Hunters, which is consequences we didn't get into the end of the first series, which I thought was brilliant because there were a lot of nice callbacks. Avalon, parts one through three, was a strong suit because we got the the answer of what happened Mm -hmm. to the eggs and the Archmage because he disappeared. 
Hunter's Moon is which I consider the real finale. Sure. The Hunter's Moon where it sort of closes that story for me in a sense because the Hunter sort of exposed the clan's existence to the world and they destroyed the police department's clock tower and they were kind of fighting for their lives. In the meantime, Demona had her plans to get rid of all the humans <laughs> with this master plague and they defeated Demona by destroying the protection for the gargoyles and the spell thing. And at the very end, they were welcomed back home to their castle by Xanatos. Yeah, to me, that is the series finale as well. I'm a big Greg Weissman supporter. I don't consider the third season as part of my Gargoyles watch. To give a brief history here, Greg Weissman, who was a big part in creating the series and the lore and everything, he was still technically employed for season three, but he Mm -hmm. was reduced to being a consulting producer. So he had some input about things, but they didn't have to like follow through with a lot of his input. So yeah, they took some of his ideas, but they didn't really fall to it. So really, even though he wrote the first episode of season three, some people consider that to be canon. But I think as a fan, I still wouldn't even count the first episode of season three, which is called The Journey. I still consider Harvest Moon to be the series finale of the show. Mm -hmm. Like that to me is the end of Gargoyles. Yeah, like here's the thing about season three. We had new voiceovers where they're trying to connect human to like Gargoyles. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time where I feel like Disney really embraced Gargoyles because as I believe it was Greg Weissman who was talking about the whole thing like they were afraid to put Disney in the title. It wasn't until Disney Plus we saw that on there because the way he described they were Buena Vista's Gargoyles. Even though they had the same animation style and product quality it was still this weird side thing that wasn't connected. They're lesser known Disney cartoons that appear on the Disney channel like like Disney's Gummy Bears was more Disney than Gargoyles. Even though only a select few saw that cartoon if you were privileged to get the Disney Channel. Or if you got it on their special preview weekends because you were poor, so they Mm -hmm. would put it on so kids can watch it and Mm -hmm. beg their parents, I need this. But yeah, this show, it was a different animation style. The tone was radically different and it did not have connecting Mm storylines with the exception of the Quarrymen were just not the same threat level as the Hunters or Xanatos. With that in mind, do you have a recommended viewing order? Do you prefer to just watch all the episodes, even including season three? Do you want to exclude season three? If you want an abridged version of just the storyline of the essence of Gargoyles, the one that you used from Denny Geek, I looked through it. It has a good chunk of the story. You get every beat of Macbeth, Desdemona, and the clan's journey. Yeah, so let me get into that. 42 episodes, and what I will say about these 42 episodes when watching them is that there wasn't a point throughout the entire run where I felt lost. So they were very carefully selected and really helped tell the full story in a complete manner. What's really cool about Gargoyles is that they're not excluding bad episodes, at least not from my understanding. It's just more of a line like, this is how you can streamline it a little better and you can jump into any other episode that wasn't on that list and still get a really fruitful experience from the whole thing you know i would include some of the world tour because i don't think you included the one where they ended up with the egyptian god in that list no no which talks about grief and mortality things we already covered with other characters but it was a little bit more on the nose i i would say don't bother with season three hunter's moon is your finale 
Valley. And so if there is material that people might be interested with Gargoyles. There are Gargoyles comics created by Slave Labor Graphics and Creature Comics, which appeared between 2006 and 2009. The comic acted as a continuation of the animated series after the episode 65, picking up after the climatic second season finale, Hunter's Moon Part 3. The first two issues of the comic translate episode 66, The Journey, season three, episode one, which was the only third season Gargoyle episode Weissman considers to be canonical, as well as the only third season episode of that Weissman wrote. So issue number three of the Gargoyles comic then begins a completely new storyline, which deliberately ignore the rest of the events of the televised third season. Weissman has confirmed that the in-universe timeline of the comic starts in 1996, just after the conclusion of the final episode of the series' second season. Issue number 10 was the first issue set in 1997. So he takes this very seriously. He, he is very in tune with how he wants to tell the story and making sure that continuity checks out out. This is one of the first creators. I mean, we've talked about a lot of great creators who are very delicate with their television series. We talked a lot about creators who left these very shows and they continued on to make success. But yeah, Greg Weissman, after all these years, is still trying to be the guy who wants to produce Gargoyles content. I mean, he's said in interviews, like, if he had the money to do whatever he wanted, to create whatever he wanted, mm-hmm. it would be more Gargoyles. And they're still like Dynamite as doing a prequel miniseries. Well, no, they have an ongoing one as far as oh, I yeah, know. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then they yeah, also they, have the prequel on the Dark Ages. Which is going to follow Wyvern's clan's alliance with Prince Malcolm. The miniseries mm-hmm. is going to be, I guess it was supposed to release this month, if I'm not mistaken, in July, yes. right? We're recording yeah. in July, so it's supposed to be yeah. released. You know what? So we're winding down here, Romeo, but I yeah. do want to give you one last chance to briefly discuss who you think could enjoy Gargoyles. I think someone who could enjoy Gargoyles is someone who... I think likes a somewhat serious darker tone that doesn't talk down to you. If you're a fan of mythology and cryptics, anyone of our age would enjoy it and anyone younger. Because when you look at most cartoons, I think most of them have caught up with gargoyle storytelling. Mm -hmm. Because like Adventure Time, Steven Universe, they're not this like kitschy cartoon thing that we had at the time where that made gargoyle gargoyles a unique thing i think gargoyles an anime series i think all of those sort of set the standard in storytelling and cartoons yeah i agree um, with that if you want to watch a show that wants to take you seriously as an audience member and challenge you to follow and i mean still have a good time with all the like elements of cyberpunk and fantasy and, and all these other elements i mean it's really impressive how they're able to just bring it all together and have it make sense for the world and make it mm-hmm. enjoyable yeah gargoyles is definitely a good one for the kids not not too young, but someone who's definitely in like the 8 to 12 threshold would definitely into something like this. Yeah, absolutely. With that in mind, let's make some suggestions for similar shows and franchises viewers might also enjoy. I know both you and I were on the same page of like, how can we do something like this? It is a little bit of a challenge. So I'm just going to go ahead and throw out the one that helped inspire Gargoyles even be created. And that's Adventures of the Gummy Bears. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because the series is loosely inspired by the Gummy Bear Candies. It takes place in a fantasy world of medieval lands and magic and focuses uh-huh. on the lives of seven mythical beings known as gummy bears that focuses on the exploits of the main characters as they tackle a series of problems as well as aid their human friends and thwart the plans of various evil characters. So you're hearing the same keywords that are used in gargoyles, medieval, mythical beings, these things that Bob Eisner 
Ryan and other Disney executives were like, hey, you know what my kid liked watching? Adventures of Gummy Bears. <laughs> Can you do something like that? And that's basically how Gargoyles was initially conceived. You know, it started out as maybe being a comedy before shifting into a more dramatic piece. Mm-hmm. But it just always cracks me up how this show played a big part in the creation of Gargoyles. <laughs> so I got to recommend so it. So right? here are a couple of um, ones that I came up with. Transformers, the classic 1984. Again, it fits the archetype of otherworldly creatures um, helping humans to sort of go against the Decepticons. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the 1980s cartoon. You have the turtles living in the sores, making friends with April O'Neil, a reporter, and they're fighting against Shredder and the Foot Soldiers, also based in New York. Yeah, and then I also got a comparison to for Thundercats as well. If you want to go like that route as well, which was an interesting 1980s cartoon. To say the least, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, was, and I was trying to look for something more modern day. Some folks have suggested The Dragon Prince, which is on Netflix, and Avatar The Last Airbender is another one that I've, I've seen online. That one is fair because he goes into hibernation for 100 years, wakes up and finds the world in a completely different place than how he left it. Avatar Last Airbender, I could definitely get behind that. Those are pretty good. We did it. I, tr- <laughs> I did it. I tried. You tried. I think we, we survived. We did it. We talked about gargoyles. All right. This was a fun one, and we'll talk more about it in our final thoughts. So, listeners, stay tuned for our final thoughts and mailbag. Welcome back. So this is a recording we did back in July, which feels so, so long ago. (laughs) It's kind of wild when I was listening to it and we mentioned that it was July and thinking that, wow, so much has changed, not only in what's been going on with us, but what's been going on with Gargoyles. There's been some news that is worth mentioning. So we talked about how there has been constant rumors about this show being revived or rebooted or whatever term you want to use. Well, back on October 16th, we finally got confirmation that a live action series reboot is in the works at Disney+. Plus. Uh-huh. It's going to be coming from Gary Doberman and James Wan, of all people. James Wan's production company, Atomic Monster. They're going to be developing this live action series. Doberman, who has worked with James Wan, you know, writing those Annabelle films and among other things. He's going to be serving as the writer and executive producer. Wan will also get a producer credit, you know, because it's his production company. But this was not the direction that I thought we were heading. (laughs) There was even news before that. I don't know if you remember about Kenneth Branagh directing a film. Also, Jordan Peele also talked about pitching to Disney because he really wanted to make a live action film. Right. But the Branagh one, I thought for sure was going to happen. And then that did not happen. That turned out to be not very true. And now this James Wan news comes out. Total surprise. I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic. What can I say and that's the best way I can say it because I do like some of the James Wan produced material but he's also has a hand in producing a lot of bad films in my opinion so so, so the tagline makes me nervous <laughs> sure which states that um, Goliath is the last of the heroic race of gargoyle warriors that once lived among mankind. Now free, he struggles to solve the mystery of his past while watching over modern-day New York City alongside police detective Elisa Maza. Now, one, where are the rest of the gargoyle clan? I don't like that. It reminds me of Linda Hamilton and Ron Perlman early 90s TV show, Beauty and the Beast. Because I can't remember if Linda Hamilton's character was detective or not, 
but I think, but they still have crime, but he lived under the sores. This is just basically that remake using a, a more established title that'll get people to subscribe to Disney+. Plus. Not thrilled by the whole idea. I mean, I think television show, you're really asking yourself to spend a whole lot of money per episode on something. I, I just, I don't see it should have been them animated. being able to produce what they're pitching mm-hmm. here. And, and I agree. It either should have been animated or they should have made it a film because it's going to be very expensive per episode to produce this. It's for Disney Plus. You know, I, I just don't see it happening. If they were to do a live action, it should be a continuation thing like Ahsoka because it sounds like they're reinventing the wheel again. I don't want a retelling of that same story. All right. So not much to clean up. So there's this one thing where we weren't really sure when Star Trek Next Generation ended and when Gargoyles began. I mean, we knew Gargoyles premiered on October 24th, 1994. Star Trek Next Generation ended on May 23rd, 1994. A lot of Star Trek actors made their way onto Gargoyles in the main cast or in special guest appearances. So it's kind of fun to see that. All right. So let's go ahead and move on. If you ever want to reach us on social media or through email, you can definitely do that. You can always do it at essentials at gmail.com. It's a great way to reach out to us and let us know your thoughts or share your comments about what episodes, any questions or comments, you can always relay it to us through that email and let us know what you think. Uh, and if you have any questions and, you know, we'll recite it right here on our final thoughts. If you ever want to reach out to us on Facebook, you can do that at Binge Essentials. You can also find us on Instagram at Binge Essentials. You can find me on Instagram at David Rocha Binge. You can find Romeo at Armora02. You can find me on X at David Rocha Radio. And you can find Romeo there, I guess, at Armora1. It's time to tease next month's episode. Next month's episode is X-Men, the animated series. That's right. We're going back to the 90s, just like we did with Gargoyles, to talk about one of the more iconic television series of our childhood. Right now, there's no one joining us, but that could change. And I know that this is something that Romeo's been really pushing towards because he keeps saying that we're getting this new show. And I've been the one who's saying, yeah, well, where's our trailer? Where's our stills? Where's our release date? Where are all these things? Finally, I caved and said, fine let's just do it in January get it over with and then from there we'll see if this show X-Men 97 is what I'm referring to will ever actually premiere <laughs> uh, well yeah and, and here's the thing the merchandise is already out <laughs> There were Halloween costumes. Toys are currently on the shelves for Christmas. Iger did something and screwed up the release schedule because it was all supposed to come out. And that's the thing too. I'd rather be early. I'm like, hey, we have it out. Yeah, I mean, it's an iconic show. We'll see if revisiting it makes it feel just as iconic as it once felt when you watched it in the 90s. Right. Okay, so that's it. With all that being said, I want to thank you guys listening and we'll catch you guys next month. 